This episode is brought to you by Podbean. Are you looking to start your own podcast? Podbean is an easy and powerful way to start podcasting. We give you all of the tools you need for a successful podcast, and there's no difficult technology to learn. Sign up today for a free Podbean account at www.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Those New Year's resolutions into gear at Old Navy with up to 50% off all Old Navy active right now. All your favorite active wear is on sale. From hoodies to sweatshirts to the new Elevate legging with Power Soft fabric. All Old Navy active for the family is up to 50% off with styles starting at just 8 bucks for adults, 6 bucks for kids. But you better get moving. This deal won't last long. It ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1-2 to 1-9 excludes in-store clearance. Crystal against buying it 
and wasn't happy that she had done it anyway. Reverend Ivan now says that he regrets that decision because he didn't realize that as he watched his daughter drive away, that that would be the last time he would ever see her alive again. About two days later, on March 7th, Mary is sitting by the phone, waiting on a call from Crystal. She hadn't seen or heard from Crystal since the night she and Brittany came by to show off the car. Mary was growing extremely concerned because it wasn't like Crystal to just go this long without calling. Mary and Reverend Ivan had called Crystal's cell phone numerous times, sent her a bunch of texts, and even wrote messages on her social media, but Crystal never responded. Mary had also called up the local hospitals and jails, hoping to find Crystal, but still there was no sign of her. Mary worked for the Houston school system and was able to find out that Zaniah had actually not been to school. Mary and Reverend Ivan drove to Annie Lee's house to pick up their granddaughter, but there was still no sign of Crystal or Brittany. The Jackson family phone finally rang, but it wasn't Crystal on the other end of the line. It was an investigator from the Galveston County Sheriff's Office, and they were asking for Mary and Reverend Ivan to come in to speak with them. The Jacksons rushed to the station, unsure of what to expect. When they arrived, they were given the devastating news that no parent ever wants to hear. Brittany and Crystal had been found murdered earlier that morning. Mary immediately went into shock and refused to believe the news. It was only after investigators showed the Jacksons photos from the crime scene and described Crystal's tattoos in detail that it started to sink in for Mary that her daughter was gone. Earlier that morning, shortly before 7 a.m., a Del Papa Distribution Co. delivery driver had arrived to the Fisherman's Cove Food Mart in Port Bolivar, Texas. He was making a scheduled delivery of two cases of beer but needed to throw away some trash that was in his work vehicle. The delivery driver drove to the back of the store where the trash dumpster was and got out of the car. He hadn't even walked a few steps before he noticed the two bodies laying on the ground next to the dumpster. The delivery driver quickly ran inside the convenience store and called for help. When police arrived to the scene a short time later, they immediately took notice of how odd the crime scene looked. To understand what was so odd about the crime scene, let me give you a bit of background about where Crystal and Brittany were found. Port Bolivar is an unincorporated community located in the Bolivar Peninsula in Galveston County, Texas. It's a scrubby piece of land covered in sand dunes, marshes, and palm trees, and it's also pretty much deserted, which makes it the perfect place to go if you want to hide something. Yet, the bodies have been left in plain sight. Getting to Port Bolivar requires a 20-minute ferry ride from Galveston, and the Fisherman's Cove Food Mart sits a mile away from the ferry dock. Either the killer was too lazy to completely carry out the crime, or they were in a rush and fled the scene after dumping Crystal and Brittany's bodies. However the crime had been carried out, investigators were confident that Crystal and Brittany had not been killed at this location. Investigators discovered a green window shutter 20 feet away from the dumpster propped up against an abandoned hotel next door to the convenience store, and it had blood spatter on it. They turned their attention back to the bodies and noticed that the victims were oddly laid out on the ground. One body was on its side, and the other was face down with a sheet covering its face. Both their legs were intertwined as if they were tangled up in each other. When one officer dared to pull back the sheet on the body whose face was covered, a chill went down his spine. The face on this body was completely disfigured. Meanwhile, the other body appeared to just have been shot in the head. Luckily, investigators would not have a hard time getting a lead in identifying the victims. A bloody envelope was found near the bodies, 
and it was addressed to Brittany Cosby. The address on the envelope was to a residence in Sunnyside, which was an hour and a half away. So now investigators were questioning how two possible Houston residents ended up in a deserted part of town. So they headed to Sunnyside to get some answers. Later that morning, investigators pulled up in front of a small house in Sunnyside, which is in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Houston, Texas. They walked up to the front door and knocked. A tall, middle-aged black man answered the door and appeared to be surprised to see police at his door. Detective Danny Kitchens introduced himself and asked the man for his name and also if he and his team could enter the home. The man identified himself as Larry Cosby and stepped aside to let the investigators in. Once seated in the dining room, Detective Kitchens begins interviewing Larry and his 90-year-old grandmother, Annie Lee. He asked if he knew of Brittany Cosby and what their relation to her was. Larry answered that Brittany was his daughter and Annie Lee's great-granddaughter and also confirmed that Brittany lived at the residence with them. Detective Kitchens then broke the news that two bodies had been found in Port Bolivar and one of them was believed to be Brittany. Police video of the interview shows Larry visibly upset, asking what happened in a high-pitched voice. Detective Kitchens assured him that investigators were working on finding that out and that he needed to know if Larry knew who the other body was. Larry identified the other victim as Crystal Jackson, Brittany's girlfriend. Detective Kitchens asked Larry when was the last time he saw Brittany, and he said it was yesterday morning. Neither he nor Annie Lee were able to provide much else about their last interactions with the couple, but Larry did mention that Brittany and Crystal had a car and that he hadn't seen it since breakfast time the previous morning. Investigators thanked Larry and Annie Lee for their time and left them to grieve. Larry's identification of Crystal's body helped lead investigators to the Jacksons, who are now trying to process the awful news that they had just received. Through their shock and grief, Mary and Reverend Ivan cooperated with investigators and answered their questions regarding the last time they saw Crystal. They also provided background information about their daughter's relationship with Brittany. Crystal Jackson had been small in size, standing at about 4'9 or 5 feet tall, but was known to be a very strong-minded person. She had a restless energy about her and was always determined to work towards something regardless of any obstacles she faced. Crystal managed to stay out of trouble during her teen years, but she ended up getting pregnant with her daughter Zania during her senior year of high school. Crystal dropped out and later received her GED. From that point on, she worked various jobs, always leaving one for another, even if it only paid a few cents more. Her goal was to provide for her daughter and to give Zanai the, the things that she wasn't able to have growing up, like nice clothes, shoes, and expensive toys. Zanaya's father was never really in the picture, so the Jacksons stepped up to help Crystal take care of her. Although she was in her mid-twenties, Crystal had a youthful face and was very feminine in her appearance. She never left the house without makeup on or high heels when she went out with her friends, so it came as a shock to her parents when they found out that she was a lesbian. The Jacksons were not initially supportive and worried about what other people would think, especially since Reverend Ivan preached against homosexuality. Crystal's half-sister, Laquita Jackson, who Crystal was very close to, was aware that Crystal was a lesbian and stated that Crystal had been dating women for several years. When Crystal and Brittany met in 2012 on a metro bus, they fell in love almost instantly. They were rarely ever apart and were described as two peas in a pod. Laquita was supportive of their relationship, but Crystal's parents initially were not. 
Crystal eventually brought Brittany around her parents and her daughter, and over time, the Jacksons became cordial with Brittany. Although they didn't completely agree with Crystal's choices, they still loved her and continued to support her and Zanella. At some point during their relationship, Crystal moved in with Brittany at Annalise House in Sunnyside, and the Jacksons eventually allowed Crystal to take Zania with her to stay over some days out of the week. The Jacksons shared with investigators that the couple were in the process of making big plans for their future, and one of the first steps in their plan was to buy a car. They told investigators that the last time they saw Brittany and Crystal was the night of March 5th. So when Detective Kitchens asked if they knew how the couple ended up in Port Bolivar, the Jacksons simply explained that they didn't know and that they were also not aware of any enemies who would have wanted to hurt the couple. The news about Crystal and Brittany began to spread quickly throughout the community. Although investigators had more information about the victims, they still weren't able to establish any potential suspects or motives for the crime. Investigators called Larry Cosby down to the sheriff's office to interview him further in hopes of piecing together the couple's last movements. During the second interview, which was also captured on police video, Larry can be seen seated at a table talking to Detective Kitchens and another investigator. Larry explains again how the last time he saw the couple was the morning of March 6th. He stated it was a normal morning, to which Detective Kitchens had to remind him that it wasn't because the couple's normal routine was to take Zania to school, which is not what happened that morning. Larry didn't have much to say to that statement, and when investigators continued to ask him about the last time he saw Brittany and Crystal, he flatly replied, I don't have the answers to the questions you're asking me. With this second interview pretty much not going anywhere, Detective Kitchens thanked Larry for his time and concluded the interview. During the early days of the investigation, Crystal and Brittany's autopsy report confirmed how brutal their attacks actually were. It was revealed that Brittany had been choked and beaten so badly that her neck had been broken and her skull had been fractured. According to the coroner, Brittany had lost a significant amount of blood to the point that her body was nearly empty. Crystal had also been choked, but she ultimately died from a gunshot wound to her right temple. The bullet extracted from her body was a 38. Six days after Brittany and Crystal's bodies were discovered, a candle-lit vigil was held in their memory. Local Houston news station KTRK captured footage from the vigil of friends, family, and local residents embracing one another, singing songs, and crying together. KTRK also captured Larry at the vigil, standing in the center of the crowd, holding a bouquet of balloons. Joined by Brittany's mother, Loranda McDonald, Larry said a few words and released his balloons into the sky. When he was interviewed by KTRK, Larry spoke kindly of Brittany. He told reporters that he was never going to be the same and that he was going to miss her smile, her bubbliness, and her spontaneity. When reporters asked Larry if there had been any updates in the investigation, he responded that investigators were still working on the case, but that there had been no developments. Contrary to Larry's statements to the press, investigators had actually made great progress in Brittany and Crystal's case. One of the first developments came in a few days into the investigation. A man called to report that while he was walking his dog, he found a wallet belonging to Brittany on a dirt road. This dirt road was not located too far from Brittany's house where she lived with Annie Lee in Sunnyside. The man had mailed the wallet back but called police when he heard about the murders on the news. Investigators believed that the dirt road had to have been the killer's first intended dump site. After receiving this first break in the case, the focus of the investigation shifted to finding the missing Kia Sorento. 
Investigators obtained surveillance video taken from a liquor store near Annie Lee's house that showed the missing vehicle in motion on the morning of March 6th. The car was later seen again going towards Galveston that same evening. Another surveillance video taken from the Galveston Ferry landing showed the missing car being stopped by Ferry Security Officer Robert Ingram around 9.18 p.m. On the video, Ingram can be seen talking to a male driver. One of the headlights was out on the car, so the driver exited the vehicle and both he and Ingram appeared to be working together to fix the light. After a few minutes, Ingram allowed the driver to continue onto the ferry, and 20 minutes later, the missing vehicle can be seen exiting the ferry. Lieutenant Tommy Henson later told True Crime Daily that Brittany and Crystal were most likely transported in their own car, and if Ingram had done a more thorough search, he would have found the bodies in the car. Despite the video footage of the missing vehicle, investigators were still not able to locate it. The next break in the case was the biggest and would end up blowing the case wide open. A fingerprint that had been lifted from a piece of paper found at the crime scene had come back from the lab, and it was an exact match to Brittany's father, Larry Cosby. Investigators wasted no time and obtained a search warrant for Annie Lee's house. When they arrived, neither Larry or Annie Lee were there because they were a few blocks away at the vigil. Investigators and the forensics team quickly began their search of the house, and it wasn't long before they found blood. Lots of blood. There was drops of blood discovered on the ground of the carport, on the porch, and outside on the sidewalk. Inside the home, when the forensics team performed a luminol test in Larry's room, it lit up like a Christmas tree. There was blood on the couch, on clothes laying nearby, and on the walls. Throw rugs had been placed over large pools of blood found in the carpet of Larry's room, and luminol testing proved that there had been an attempt made to clean it up. A box of 38 and 357 Remington brand bullets were also found in Larry's room. The 38 bullets were an exact match to the bullet used to kill Crystal, and investigators believed that the weapon that was used to kill Crystal was a 357 Smith & Wesson Magnum revolver. Remember the window shutter found at the crime scene in Port Bolivar? Well, the shutters at Annie Lee's house were an exact match, and there happened to be one missing from the window outside of Larry's bedroom. With all this unbelievable amount of evidence collected, investigators headed to the vigil to find Larry to bring him in for more questioning. After Larry was done speaking with KTRK and the vigil had come to a close, Larry and his mother Patricia were walking through the parking lot when investigators approached him. They pulled him aside and asked that he come with them back to the station to answer more questions about the murders. Back at the sheriff's office, Lieutenant Hanson and Detective Kitchens proceeded to interview Larry for five and a half hours. Unfortunately, they weren't able to get any answers out of him. Larry could not explain how or why his fingerprint was found at the crime scene in Port Bolivar. He also couldn't explain the, the large amounts of blood found in his room at Annie Lee's house. When he was asked about the missing window shutter, Larry claimed to not know anything and said that it probably had been removed before he moved back into the home. At one point, Lieutenant Hanson and Detective Kitchens even left Larry with the crime scene photos of Brittany and Crystal's bodies, but he still didn't budge. Larry never gave any answers to his involvement in the murders, so Lieutenant Hanson and Detective Kitchens were left with no choice but to charge Larry with two felony counts for tampering with evidence. They believed that Larry had seen Brittany and Crystal's bodies, did not report it to the police, and later disposed of them behind the convenience store in Port Bolivar. Unable to make his $500,000 bond, Larry sat in jail while investigators began working on putting together their case. Days after Larry's arrest, separate funeral services were held for Brittany and Crystal. 
Reverend Ivan spoke at his daughter's funeral, and during his speech, he fondly recounted how he and Crystal had had a loving relationship. He also stated that she would always be his little girl. The couple were laid to rest at the same cemetery, but as Crystal's burial was ending, Brittany's was beginning. Crystal's family was able to cover her funeral expenses using money from a life insurance policy and donations from GoFundMe. Reverend Ivan angrily remembers how Larry had asked a few times for a donation towards Brittany's funeral expenses, saying, I cussed him out, asking for money. I told him I wasn't giving him any money when I needed to take care of my own. While he was in jail, Larry's court-appointed attorney, Greg Russell, requested a gag order to prevent his client from speaking to the media. Although the gag order was successfully put into place, Ebony Magazine, Huffington Post, and BuzzFeed covered the case. Each outlet seemed to share the same suspicion that Brittany and Crystal were victims of a hate crime. Not long after Larry's arrest, Reverend Ivan spoke with the media and admitted that he didn't agree with Crystal's sexual orientation, but that he would never have killed her or Brittany and had taken them to Port Bolivar to hide it. Larry's sister, Ebony McDade, took to YouTube to give her opinion about the case and her brother's involvement in the murders. In the video, Ebony says she has no doubt that Larry committed the crime. Quote, my brother had a history of things, and we knew he was never a straight-line path, but I never thought he would do this. Ebony goes on to talk about Larry's behavior with women, how he could be aggressive and scary with them. She didn't even feel comfortable having him in her home under any circumstances. Brittany's cousin, Casey Cosby, did not want to believe that his uncle Larry had committed the crime, but he saw the blood-soaked bedroom for himself. There was no denying that his cousin had been murdered in Annie Lee's house and that the evidence pointed straight to no one else but his uncle Larry. The only two people who seemed to be on Larry's side were his mother Patricia and his grandmother Annie Lee. Patricia told the press that she admitted to being partially in denial because when she saw her son, she didn't see someone capable of committing the crime. Quote, Everyone is saying everything leads to him. If Larry did this thing, I just asked them for one thing, to give him life in prison and not the death penalty. I don't know if I could handle that. Annie Lee told the media that she didn't know what happened to Brittany and she didn't understand why everyone, including other family members, were accusing Larry. She claimed that Larry and Brittany had a good relationship and that he didn't have a problem with Brittany's sexual orientation. During the course of their interviews with Lorenda, Ebony, and Casey, investigators would learn that they had a completely different perspective on Brittany and Larry's relationship. To get a better understanding of who Brittany was and her relationship with Larry, let's go back. Brittany was described as a playful but quiet person who kept to herself. She loved her family and enjoyed spending time with her cousin Casey during the holidays. Brittany resembled Larry, but just in a smaller form. People often would say to Larry that Brittany was him, but just as a girl. When Brittany was in middle school, she began dressing in men's clothes, and it was also at this time when she started hanging out with a not-so-great group of friends. By the time Brittany reached high school, she had committed her first and only crime. Brittany and two other friends broke into a home by throwing a brick through the window. The teenagers managed to grab video games and jewelry, but were caught by police hours later. After this brush with the law, Brittany began to turn her life around. She started working at a local KFC so she could pay back what she owed from her burglary case. She also began attending church and enrolled in nursing classes so she could take care of Annie Lee, who had lost one of her legs to diabetes. At the time of her death, Brittany was a barista at Starbucks and was well-liked by her co-workers. Casey explained that even though Brittany had a rough childhood, she was in the process of trying to make her life better. Annie Lee legally gained custody of Brittany in 1990. 
Lorenda had Brittany Young, and Annie Lee described her as not being the motherly type at the time. Larry, however, was in and out of jail during Brittany's childhood. In 1994, he was convicted of sexual assault and spent 10 years in prison. He was released in 2004, but was sent back to prison in 2011 for failing to register as a sex offender. Court records also showed that Larry had prior convictions for unlawfully carrying a weapon. When Larry was released from prison in October of 2013, he had nowhere else to go, so he moved in with Annie Lee. Larry quickly realized things had changed at his grandmother's house, and he didn't like it. Brittany and Crystal were now living with Annie Lee and were also helping to take care of her. Annie Lee and the couple each had their own room, while Larry was left to sleep in the converted garage on the couch. Adding on to the tension of the living situation was Larry's dislike for Brittany's sexual orientation. When investigators interviewed Loranda, she told them that Larry would throw Brittany's sexuality in her face. Brittany even told Loranda that Larry had told her, quote, don't throw that gay shit around in this house. Brittany's cousin, Casey, witnessed the strained relationship between father and daughter and said that Brittany and Larry bumped heads often. Larry's sister, Ebony, told the Houston Press that the night the bodies were found, Larry told her exactly how Brittany and Crystal died, but when he spoke to police, he acted surprised. Quote, his whole demeanor, his body language, was like a dog died, not his own daughter. We were shocked by all of this, and he was eating in the kitchen and drinking a beer. Loranda, who unfortunately found out about her daughter's death from a Facebook post, expressed in an interview with True Crime Daily how deeply hurt she was and that she just wanted to know why Larry had taken away her only girl. Investigators eventually learned that only a week after the couple had purchased their car, Larry had asked to borrow it. Brittany told him no, which likely added to the mounting tension in the home. When they interviewed Annie Lee's caretaker, she said she witnessed a dispute between Larry and Brittany over food on the evening of March 5th. Larry was upset that Brittany and Crystal had come home with the pizza and he was stuck eating a bologna sandwich. In response, Brittany told him to go out and earn the money to get his own pizza. The caregiver said she became uncomfortable and left the residence. With this information, investigators firmly believed that Larry had murdered Brittany and Crystal out of resentment. The couple were living considerably better than him. They had their own room, they were able to eat whatever they wanted, and they had also just purchased a new car. Investigators began putting together a timeline of what they believed happened to Crystal and Brittany the day they died. Sometime before 8 a.m. on March 6th, Crystal and Brittany were getting Zaniah ready for school. While Crystal was putting Zanaya in the car, Brittany and Larry began arguing inside the house. Investigators then believed that Larry struck Brittany, beating her to death, and then attacked Crystal when she walked in and tried to get involved. After the murders, Larry spent the day with his girlfriend, and later that evening, he put Brittany and Crystal's bodies into the back of their car and drove to Port Bolivar. A month after Larry's arrest, Brittany and Crystal's missing Kia Sorento turned up at an impound lot. The car had been abandoned outside of a strip club off the Gulf Freeway and the club had the car towed. A bullet was found lodged in the back of the car and blood was found in the trunk. Blood evidence inside the car showed that Crystal's body had been on the left side of the cargo area and Brittany's had been on the right. Investigators believed that there had been a mat in the back of the car, but that it had been removed or destroyed along with a gun that was used to kill Crystal. The sheriff's office was now positive that they had a solid case against Larry and after 40 weeks, they formally charged him on one count of capital murder. Finally, in August of 2016, court proceedings began, and at his plea hearing, Larry firmly pleaded not guilty. In his opening statement, Larry's defense attorney, Greg Russell, told jurors that there was no direct evidence connecting Larry to the murders. 
Assistant DA Paul Love countered in his opening statement that there was plenty of evidence to corroborate that Larry was indeed the killer, including a matching fingerprint found at the crime scene and a positive ID from Ferry security. During the course of the trial, various witnesses and family members testified, but Larry never took the stand in his defense. The prosecution was able to provide proof that Larry's cell phone had traveled from Houston to Port Bolivar and back to Houston on the same day the murders occurred. It was also revealed that the bed sheet found wrapped around Brittany's face had belonged to Larry. Larry's trial lasted for a week, and during that time, the jury was presented with about 800 exhibits. Before making their final decision, the jurors asked to review the footage of Larry's interviews with investigators, phone records, and photos of the bloody window shutter from the crime scene in Port Bolivar. After three hours, the jurors returned with a guilty verdict, and Larry was automatically sentenced to life without parole. One eyewitness who may have been able to help solve the case a lot sooner was Crystal's then five-year-old daughter, Zaniah. The little girl sat down with True Crime Daily and explained that on the morning of the murders, she witnessed her mom go back inside of the house to get Brittany. She says Larry ran up to the car and took the keys out of the ignition. Zaniah followed Larry back inside the house and asked where her mom was and if she could look for her in his room. Larry told her no in a mean voice, so Zaniah retreated to her mother's room where she stayed quiet and watched TV waiting for her mother's return. Zaniah claims that while she was inside the house, she heard buzzing and popping noises. When Zaniah was asked how much she missed her mom, she said, maybe the last number of all the numbers. That's the highest number. James Larry Cosby is currently incarcerated at the Alfred D. Hughes Unit Prison in Gatesville, Texas. He attempted to appeal his case, but it was denied in 2017. Thank you for joining me on the very first episode of Noir True Crime Files. Today's episode was written and edited by me. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at NTCF Podcast, and you can also visit the show's official website at noirtcfpodcast.squarespace.com. Join me next week for a new crime file, and I hope you all have a happy and safe holiday weekend. Goodbye for now. This episode is brought to you by Podbean Live. Podbean Livestream is a unique platform for turning your podcast production into a live show. It's open to any podcaster on any hosting site. Easily invite multiple co-hosts and guests to join your live stream. Earn money from live show ticket sales and get listener rewards and engage your audience in new and exciting ways. Ready to get started? Sign up today at www.podbean.com slash live. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash live.